This is Martyr She Wrote, and I'm Anna Clark Miller, a religious trauma therapist. This podcast is for survivors of religious trauma and abuse, so consider this your trigger warning. If you want to learn more or support the podcast financially, check out my new book called The Religious Trauma Survival Guide. Details are at empathyparadigm.com. Don't worry, though, you can still listen even if you haven't contributed financially. <laughs> Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Well, everyone, today I have with me Dr. Mark Gregory Karras, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an experienced university professor, and a best-selling author of several books about spiritual healing, including his most recent book called The Diabolical Trinity, Healing Religious Trauma from a Wrathful God, Tormenting Hell, and Sinful Self. Mark, thanks for being here. It's so wonderful to be here with you, Anna. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you do and what you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. What I do? Well, I'm a father to a, a wonderful six-year-old boy. I'm in private practice, full-time private practice in San Diego. So that takes up most of the time. And right now, just doing a lot of uh, different podcasts and interviews and, um, you know, just speaking on the topic of religious trauma. Mm -hmm. So seem to be busy with that. And that's exciting. It's exciting to me. Yeah, just really passionate about this topic. I have my own experiences that maybe we'll, we'll talk about too. So that pretty much takes up most of my time. I, I really value family and working as a, as a therapist. Cool. So has religious trauma always been something that you've focused on in therapy, or is this kind of a newer thing? That's a good question. So I, I have, I think, a dual uh, niche for me. So I specialize, I say I specialize in couples therapy and okay. religious trauma. And so for me, the couples therapy came first as far as a real passion, just because of my background and I you know, wrote a couple of books by then. And so I would get some clients that were dealing with religious spiritual issues, but it wasn't until the last few years that like I had a framework around religious trauma. And I think it's just because of just some incredible people, you know, like yourself and others that are just trying to put some different language to this, kind of putting some operational definitions out there. And a matter of fact, the book before this was called Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. I don't even think I used the word religious trauma. I don't, I don't think I did. So, But it was my heart to help people who I saw was suffering or working through religious spiritual issues. And then in this book, yeah, it just uh, had a better framework around religious trauma. And uh, so that's sort of a, an evolution for me. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you've had some personal experiences related to religious trauma. Is there anything that you'd be comfortable sharing with us about that? Sure. So when I think of religious trauma, this is for me. For me, it describes the harmful effects caused by my repeated encounters with what I considered suffocating religious beliefs, oppressive behaviors from religious people constricting religious rules and confining religious structures, both within Pentecostalism and evangelicalism. 
So religious trauma had definitely negative effects on my nervous system, my emotional landscape, my view of self and others, and relationships. So for me, the symptoms occurred gradually over time. I, I sort of frame it in this way, similar to drinking water contaminated with toxic metals, where an individual is unaware of the slow drip poison that slowly seeps into their body. And I've also experienced a couple of what I would call jarring religious traumatic events that was likened to maybe an earthquake that instantly can shake an individual's foundation and leaves them struggling to regain their footing in the world. So I got saved. And for me, this is a powerful story because it really is a conversion story. It was, you know, I consider myself a master deconstructionist, but there's something really special for me that I still hold as someone whose um, mom was a drug addict. She died from a drug overdose, mm -hmm. tracing my family's history. Her great-grandmother died in the mental hospital. Her sister was mentally ill. Three out of my four uncles have a mental illness. My dad is mentally ill. And my younger brother is paranoid schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And he'll be in, in prison for the rest of his life. So that's the milieu in which I was raised in. And then my stepfather was big in the motorcycle gangs called the Pagans. Anyway, it's just a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah. And so fast forward, I was depressed, a cutter, just really lost, depressed. Um, music was a big, like, that kind of, I think, saved my life in many ways, picking up the guitar and then fast forward some experiences, and then I was 21, and I was in a field all by myself. And the last words I remember saying, I would call this BC, I said, God, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. If you're real, show yourself to me. Hmm. And that was a profound experience. There was no fog machine and strobe lights and, you know, community around me, like buzzing bees trying to get me to, you know, give my life to Jesus or anything. But I, you know, I say I got saved from one hell into another hmm. because it was a cultish experience. The one is Pentecostal church, or people might know it as the apostolic church. Women, even if, like, check this out. This is how, like, wild this was. If women trimmed their hair, mm -hmm. they thought they would be in danger of hellfire. Yeah, because there's a there's a, a passage in Corinthians talking about a woman's hair is her glory and you know, yes, but but men couldn't have facial hair and I couldn't have long hair. I was coming from a progressive metal hardcore band, and so and there's another passage in Corinthians doesn't doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair it's a shame unto himself? Like they could find verses, uh -huh. you know, unless you're Samson, um, in which case uh, it's where your strength comes from. I, tell me about it. I mean, there's definitely uh, some disparity here and in, incongruence in, in <laughs> mm -hmm. and thinking around all this stuff. But I was, I got so bound up in all this, in the fear of God, the fear of hell, hmm. that I, I couldn't even drink soda. I thought I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's how wild this stuff got into me. Uh, so it was very serious. I wasn't allowed to hang out with people who believe in the Trinity because they only believed in one God. If you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus only, that's where they get the Jesus only phrase from, then you also were not saved. And if you didn't speak in tongues mm. as the Holy Spirit gave you the utterance, then you were also not saved. So that is my yeah. climate that I, I sort of 
got saved and, and was there for many years until I ran away. That's a story in itself. It's interesting that you describe it as going from one hell to another, because it sounds like in a lot of ways that did save you from some really negative stuff, but then Mm -hmm. it also introduced some toxic stuff. It did. And, you know, there were some messages, you know, around what I would call legalism Mm. and literalism and the effects of that. But there were caring people, you know, that's what was so enticing. Like, like, for example, the pastor's wife was amazing. Just a woman of love and light. Like I can have a family. And it just so happened that there was a lot of traumatic experiences in that. The stifling of creativity, the stifling of my core sense of self, the infusion of shame and the fuel that it gave my inner critic and just the beliefs around hell and, you know, it stayed with me for quite some time. Yeah. What were the things that you were taught about hell that sort of created that anxiety or that trauma response? Totally. I just, it's so interesting, the topic of hell. So for me, hell indoctrination is the diabolical trinity. Like, In other words, you cannot have any eternal hell without a wrathful God who created it. And then you can't have an eternal hell without sinful people to be put there. Hmm. So there is this trinity of core beliefs that surround hell indoctrination that deeply uh, impacted me. And so do I think that, for example, believing in an angry, punitive and imperfection phobic God who sees all and knows all, who can, with a snap of a finger, violently punish us in this life if we do something wrong, something very common in the Old and New Testament, and can send us to a place called hell when we die where we will be tormented and tortured forever without any possibility of peace, joy, and comfort. Can that be traumatic? Hell to the yes, it can. (laughs) And it was for me, it was for many people. What's interesting though, is another person's theological trash is another person's theological treasure. Hmm. And there are people who can praise God for this doctrines. Uh, It makes sense for them. There is no religious trauma, but for me, and I think of so many people that I've worked with and in the qualitative literature that talk about hell beliefs and the consequences. I just find that most of us who experience religious trauma We're just, I find us to be sensitive, big hearted people that like, if someone tells us something like we want to believe it, you know, like there's a sincerity to, to us who are affected in this way. Like we really believed it. Like we trusted people, you know? And so I feel like a lot of people I encounter are these creative, expansive, big hearted, sensitive, sold, beautiful human beings who are given this stuff and that's why we're affected by it so much because we actually believed it on an experiential level as opposed to maybe other folks who may it's just information you yeah. know or or they can deal with it in a way that's you know there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and they just it just makes sense like for them a just and holy god equals a god who can't stand sin and is justified to torture people for eternity. Like, 
literally it really makes sense for them. I'm just like, it's just not where I'm at. It's not for me, you know? Yeah. I think the cognitive dissonance is definitely a big factor there, but I kind of want to push back though against your, your idea that the people who are traumatized by this are, you know, maybe more sensitive or more open-minded or, or, or more trusting. Just, I mean, I think that that can be one reason, but I also know a lot of folks who hate the idea of hell, but because they are told this is the way it is they mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they have to just trust and so rather than sort of spending time obsessing about it and you know thinking mm-hmm, about how mm-hmm. uncomfortable it makes them feel i think that's kind of where spiritual bypassing comes in you know uh-huh. like no matter how sensitive you are or aren't if you have a really good talent for just mm-hmm. bypassing something uncomfortable because it is what it is and you've got to just trust that god's got a plan then I think that can make a really convenient step for a lot of people to just push past that discomfort. Yeah. Regardless of what you're, if I hear you right, regardless of temperament. Yes. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm, I love it. I I would be curious. There's so much research that could be done around this. Yeah. I would be curious. Why are, why do some people like, me and maybe yourself, mm-hmm. you know, other people who's experienced religious trauma. What makes us predisposed in that way? Like, I like be. I'd be curious about attachment styles, like how that comes into play. Like, I think there's could be some cool research, um, temperament, attachment styles, self compassion. For me, it would be a, a neat study. You know, I think that could be a little bit more intuitive. Those who are high in self-compassion, would they be less inclined to experience religious trauma? Hmm. Like there's some interesting studies that I'd I'd love to, and I know people will will do this stuff. This stuff's emerging. It's Hmm. new in a way. Yeah. I definitely think there's a lot of great research that can be done. And we're just kind Mm -hmm. of on the precipice of like even identifying these terms and figuring out what is it that we even need to measure. Right, right. So you mentioned the diabolical trinity, but is there mm-hmm. anything you can expand on in terms of what would make those ideas traumatizing? Okay. Well, I think the brain's primary purpose is to keep us alive and free from pain. So I could think of hell's imprint in terms of what happens when a child touches a hot stove. And so that shock of the scorching heat's aftermath is a constant reminder, do not touch. Mm -hmm. And likewise, I think the imprint of hell would say, fear God, do not sin. So on a neurobiological level, I do think it just has this real imprint. I mean, listen, people experience panic attacks, insomnia, a, a deep level of anxiety. But then you get into the sinful self you know, ramifications and shame is a huge component in this diabolical trinity and how it affects people. Maybe I could give a description. There's a guy, Crispin Mayfield, the author of Attached to God. And I think he expressed the trauma of hell indoctrination very well. Would it be okay if I read what he wrote? Absolutely. So this is a quote from his book. And he says, I've always been terrified of hell. I could never quite relax with God because I always worried that in the end it would turn out I was a goat and not a sheep. 
This fear has always hung over my head, causing me to white knuckle my spiritual life. What if I didn't have true faith? What if between now and my death, I made some terrible decisions or ended up renouncing my faith? As much as I wanted to feel safe in the everlasting arms, I knew that I wasn't. If anyone can go to hell, then I could go to hell, which meant that I never could relax. Mm. To me, that's religious trauma, right? When it affects your nervous system to such an extent that you can't have a felt sense of safety because you're fearing certain ideas that have imprinted not just on the prefrontal cortex, but deep in the implicit subcortical nervous system, this is the essence of trauma. Yeah. yeah. I love that quote. Yeah, it's powerful. And there's so many like it. You know, part of the book, I wanted to really give voice to those deeply affected by the trauma of hell indoctrination, the diabolical trinity. And so I have so many quotes from authors. I scoured the qualitative research looking for, you know, what people have said about hell and the ramifications of that. For example, another experience, what I call sort of a phantom limb theologies, mm -hmm. you know, with phantom limb syndrome, if you, your arm is cut off or something, you can perceive that that's still there even years after the fact. And such is the case for these doctrines. Mm -hmm. And that I, I read that so much in the literature, like, even if I haven't believed this stuff in 10 years, I could still have nightmares about it. And even for me, I don't believe in eternal conscious torment and hell and a punitive God like that. And there was a chapter that I was writing in the book. It was on projections. And I had this voice in my head that said, Mark, if you write this, you're going to be responsible for people going to hell. Oh, no. And I was like, you wily <laughs> trauma. And it's sad. And I felt sad. I was able to see it for what it was. My inner critic, fueled by religious garb, mm -hmm. trying to get me to avoid potential pain and others. So it was just trying to do its job. Mm -hmm. And we had a talk and, you know, I gave uh, that part of me a hug. Yeah. But it's that stuff's very real. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The quote you were reading a second ago, it reminded me of this like double bind kind of feeling that comes from the idea of a wrathful God who sort of chooses some people to go to hell and others to go to heaven. And then mm. also the idea of the sinful self where you need to be trying your hardest to prove to God that you mm. are worthy, that you're one of the good ones, that he should pick you. Um, yeah. And and there's this, this double bind sense that like, I can try as hard as I want, but I'm never going to be good enough. And no matter how hard I try, even if I were to be good enough, I still can't control whether or not God chooses me. And so mm -hmm. there's this place of needing to try so hard, but also mm -hmm. knowing that you can never do enough to really be sure. And I think that that panic response that we've been talking about, is just yeah. such a natural overflow of being stuck in that double bind. Beautifully said. Yes, I, I experienced a double bind myself. 
for me, you're referring what I hear is sort of Calvinistic theology. Yeah. You know, some theology is so grace saturated that it's all about Jesus and what he did and just trust in Jesus and that God's not angry and punitive. Mm -hmm. But in the theologies that you're talking about, yeah, I mean, you could never know. And that's what went through my head in the Pentecostal church. It was just groveling. I, I felt like every week, sometimes I went to church three, four times a week. And like, there was an altar call every single meeting. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just like looking around and everyone's like, oh God, oh, for, you know, have mercy on me. I'm such a sinner. And they're screaming and crying and have begging. mercy on me. And begging. And I'm like, I did the same. And, but after a while I did think like, shoot, I thought like Jesus did something here, you know, hmm. and how, why am I constantly begging God to save? Like, aren't I, always, aren't I saved? It was this weird, confusing, double bind mayhem that people who are not acquainted with this, I think it's hard for them to understand. And I, I've talked to people, well-meaning people, like I went to church. I didn't like, I don't get this whole religious trauma thing. You know, for example, I have a twin brother. His experience, we we actually went to the same church. He had a very different, he dealt with it very differently, you know. But it's so fascinating how one can um, experience deleterious effects and one not. But it, yeah, that double bind, that, that screwed me up. But it's also related to parent wounds. Hmm. I have a whole chapter in, in the book, um, Flushing Out the complexity of parent wounds and religious trauma. So for example, for me, God was like my dad, you know, cold and punitive and punishing and double bind. I, I never knew if I was loved or not, or he'd say one thing or I'd, I'd hold on to it. And then the next minute later, he'd freaking punch me and, or slap me. And I'm like, you know, so it was very tricky for me to tease out. And I think part of my work as a therapist and helping some clients with this interesting entanglement of religious trauma and parent wounds, especially I didn't have this, but then people growing up with their father was a fundamentalist pastor right? and their mom, you know, since they were like four or five, Hey, God is watching. I mean, you know, if you don't, if you're not a good, you know, that's, that's, I'm scary. So it's really sad, but you know, it's real. It's not to be diminished in any way or taken lightly. Yeah. Religious trauma is a thing. Yeah. So if you were working with a client, say, who had had some of these experiences and been traumatized by hell doctrine, what mm -hmm. would be some of the first things that you would recommend for them to do in order to start healing? Yeah. You know, all this is captured in the book, right? Mm -hmm. So part one is just looking at the ill effects of religious trauma, in particular, hell indoctrination, although this, you know, of course, overlap religious traumas, religious trauma, with some uniqueness, I think, for example, I talk about hell anxiety, some researchers have done some research on hell anxiety, they have a scale on hell anxiety. I don't think it went very far, but at least there's a scale on it. Mm -hmm. So part two is my attempt. I, I say it this way. Um, facts can't heal the tracks and information does not necessitate transformation. So in part two of my book, 
well aware that you can't talk someone out of religious trauma. Um, they can't read a book and be like, oh, I'm healed. Mm -hmm. That So part two of my book is actually flushing this out on a philosophical and sociological level. So I share a few ideas that can help people loosen hell's ironclad grip on their minds, some things that were helpful for me. So I, in that, I unpack the thesis that an eternal place of torment called hell does not originate from God, but is rather a result of creative human ponderings about the afterlife, morphing into a narrative of violent projections that binds communities together. So there's always been a function of hell narratives and there, you know, there's been afterlife narratives since way back. What's so interesting in my studies here is looking at the earliest forms of religion, people might call a sociologist of religion, might call animism, mm -hmm. and it might not be a divine being, but it probably started off with my ancestors who exist in the afterlife could be mad at me. Um, and my ancestors could harm me in some way. Mm -hmm. So you could see the interesting seeds that were planted way back in the day. But then, you know, throughout the world, wherever there's religion, not always, but in many cases, there are afterlife narratives. And I think they all have very specific functions. So I think they do bind communities together. Um, mm -hmm. I think they also feed human pride and it's used by people in power to subjugate dissenters for the sake of homogeneity. Again, a glue that holds communities together. And in that way, it promotes a, a sense of what we consider to be morality. Again, that glue that binds people together. And But anyway, so I, I flushed that out in part two. And part three is where we get to the psychological insights and therapeutic practices that I think have been shown to foster profound healing deep down at the level of the nervous system. And so this is where I spend over 120 pages flushing out what I consider down-to-earth practices that people could do. And so it's all the way from memory reconsolidation work, which is basically memory work, basically using our imaginations to be able to bring some healing to us. And that's where I do compassion imagery work in the book, and then self-compassion, inner critic work, parent work, and value work. Cool. Um, but can I say that for me, self-compassion is now, you know, for those of us who've been affected by the original sin motifs and an angry God, the shame piece, thus fueling the inner critic that's what kicks so many people's asses. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've been so impacted by Buddhist psychology and Buddhist principles. And then it's flushed out with, you know, people like Kristen Neff flushing out what self-compassion looks like. And by now, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of studies on it. It's just powerful how self-compassion can be subversive to an authoritarian dictator god who tells us how much of pieces of shit that we are and how much that community has told us by its actions or non-actions or words and lack of words implicitly and explicitly but to be able to love ourselves that has changed my life yeah. i did the eight-week self-compassion course and the eight-week mindfulness courses and yeah. So I talk about them in the book and I do that with all my clients. It's so compassion focused. And there's a literal approach called compassion focused therapy. I think that's so important because 
you know, even if you've deconstructed kind of the idea of a, a wrathful, punitive God, if you still believe that you deserve hell because mm -hmm. of your mistakes or your imperfection, then you're still going to be operating in that double bind, right? Where you're trying to be mm -hmm. good enough, but you don't think you'll ever be. And so mm -hmm. I love that self-compassion element because in order to even accept compassion from God or from other people, first, I have to like believe that I deserve it on some level, not like I've earned it, but like I deserve it just as much as anyone else does. And it's a good yeah. thing. You know, self-love is a mm -hmm. good thing. It's not, it's not sinful. Oh, come on. Preach it, sister. Shoot. <laughs> Man, you know, listen, I don't even know how many there had to be thousands of sermons I've heard over the mm -hmm. years. I have not heard one. The three principles to loving yourself well. I've never heard about loving thyself. Yeah. Even though ironically, it is in the greatest commandment to love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right. But I've never heard teachings on it's always the self is bad. The self is no good. Your righteousness is filthy rags. The spirit is everything like. Yeah. Yeah, you suck, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. Literally, there's a passage where they ask Jesus, who is good? And Jesus is like, nobody. Right. Nobody but one. God, like, no. You know, the other day, this is a true story. Last week, I was looking at my six-year-old son, and I looked at him in his eyes, and I said, I just want to let you know that I love you and that you are good inside. You know, mm -hmm. and that there's nothing you could ever, ever do for me to not love you. Like, and I started tearing and I'm like, I'm like, why are you tearing, Mark? And I'm like that. I wish I heard that. Yeah. I heard the opposite in Christian communities. That's sick. It's toxic. Mm -hmm. It's not fair. And I'm like, I just would never tell my son that he is no good or he's, he's a sinner. He's deserving of hell. No, it's not good. There's nothing good about that. And anybody who knows even entry-level psychology knows that if you want someone to behave well, you don't tell them that they are incapable of doing good. You know, that mm -hmm. that's the best way to undermine them and, and make them feel just powerless and hopeless. Yeah. But like, if if you tell people you are good, you're capable of good, you know, you're worthy. Of course, they're going to want to live into that. Yeah, it's powerful. Like people need to hear more who they are, not who they are not. So it's, it's very important to me, this whole view of self and anthropology. What is our view of humankind? And to say that we're primarily sinful. Yeah, I find no good in that whatsoever. Yeah. So what would you say to folks out there who maybe agree that hell doctrine is traumatizing, but they're terrified that if they let go of that belief, that that means they're going to go there. I will say this. I have so much compassion for people struggling through this. I have some clients now. It is so entrenched. I mean, bringing people to tears one minute they think they're okay, mm -hmm. but this, this health business, man, this is, it's, it's a tough one to work through. So I don't want to give people the idea. It's something that any therapist or guru can say, 
yeah, hey, just do this and you'll be okay. It is definitely a process for some people. It takes years. And, you know, I have a lot of different ways to work with it. But I think because people are so scared, well, what if I don't believe in it? But it also gets tricky too, because then there's family members. So I'll get some people who are like, okay, maybe I could give it up for myself, but I, what if I'm wrong and my kids or my, my husband or my wife goes to hell? Right. And it's so tricky. But I think through the work of self-compassion, I think through the work of having some, what I call cognitive anchors that we can install in an experiential level. And what I mean by this is instead of believing what you believe about hell, let's frame that as there is a very scared part of you that really does believe that. But I also know there's another part of you that feels a little bit more rational, right? It feels, it's a little different. Maybe we might even call it your core self, that self that when you look at your kids and you say, no matter what they did, I could not violently inflict harm on them. Mm -hmm. So people, once they can get a few cognitive anchors that way, one could be, for example, God can't be a worse parent than I am. Hmm. Like simple as that. Like it just from a logical, philosophical, you know, framework, God, by very definition, who must surpass human beings in their goodness, cannot be a composite of Stalin and, and Hitler and Mao Zedong put together right? So for them, that could be an anchor that they can go to and they could just, you know, put their hand on their heart. They could do a self-compassion activity. And they also could remind themselves, God cannot be a better parent than I am. And I would never harm my children in that way. Then they might do a set of bilateral stimulation, hmm. which just means a back and forth, you know, activity of, you know, a rhythmic pattern where that may offer some sense of integration, but uh, that can install it in a deeper level and bring a, a greater sense of calm. So, but that would be like one intervention someone could do when hell trauma is reaping its ugly head, you know? Right. So what would you say to folks who worry that if you were to let go of uh -huh. those fears about eternal hell, does that mean that you also have to let go of eternity at all? So heaven or, you know, being reunited with loved ones. Cause I know for a lot of people, mm -hmm. they seem like a package deal. And if you lose one, even if it's the part that you kind of want to lose, they're yeah. working, they're going to lose the other half that is so precious. Yeah. As you know, everyone's journey is, is different. I mean, some people, they may have to just, like I've worked with people, they just let go of it all. Mm. It is so, it's such a mind F that they they just have to put it aside because it's too complex for them to figure out, well, here's exactly what I believe about the afterlife. Right. So for some, they just have to put it aside. For some, yeah, they do hold to still an afterlife uh, where there is a good God or they do get to see their loved ones or and even their pets. But it, it's just tricky to tease out. I mean, it can be done. Yeah. But so I suggest that hell could be something that evolved over time to benefit the community on a two-pronged approach. If you look at the passages, for example, on eternal conscious torment in the Bible, mm -hmm. which most of them are in the New Testament, because the Hebrews did not necessarily believe that in that way. 
But if you look at them, there's two functions that I see in every passage that comes up. One, it offers hope to a traumatized community that their oppressors and their trauma won't have the last word. And the second function is that, well, it becomes a glue that binds communities together, a homogenous sense of morality. So it, it does create an us and them. But in that us, it creates, you know, uh, well, this is who we are, an identity. In, in and out group, there's reasons why it works. But some people say, well, Mark, if you give the function of hell, you're also saying that maybe heaven or eternal afterlife could also function in the same way. And so some people start asking very complex questions of, well, maybe pleasant or positive afterlife narratives are just socially constructed narratives that try to offer anxiety prone creatures some sense of calm, you know, because of these existential matters that could feel pretty weighty. Right. So there's all kinds of different ways to look at this stuff. And everyone's just got to be on their own journey to, you know, to figure it out. And as a therapist, it's like, well, what do you want to do? Yeah. Like, we don't we don't have to do that. Do you want to spend some time reconstructing your narrative of what feels congruent for you, of what the afterlife looks like now that you do not believe in eternal conscious torment? Those are some things that come to mind. Very yeah. complex. What I'm kind of hearing you say is that we can't assume that it's a given like if you believe this then you must also believe this and you must believe it this way you know like it's it's not that cut and dry and so questioning one part of it doesn't mean that you then have to somehow account for every other part of it all at the same time it's yes, so yeah. infinitely complex and and really none of us know the answer <laughs> isn't it the wild thing uh, like Doing this work, my clients teach me so much. Mm -hmm. And I get some clients, there's a scrupulosity, there's yeah. really intense anxiety and you know, obsessions and compulsions in that way. But it's tricky. It's like I get no, Mark, I need to figure it out. Like I I can't not have an answer. And then I say in a loving way, uh, depending on the client, I'll say, there's no way we could know. Because there is no God who has a megaphone and is telling us exactly what happens in the afterlife. It'd be nice if he it, would. <laughs> it would be nice if she would, indeed. <laughs> right? But she hasn't. But that's an interesting piece of what I find. And I say, listen, I'm going to fast forward here. Mm -hmm. This may be where you end up. And I don't want you to believe this right now you may come to a conclusion that there's no way to know. And maybe the answer is, there's no way to know the answer. And how can we come to a place where we can be okay with that existential reality? Um, and even they can say, well, no, well, it's in the Bible. Hello, there's 35,000-ish different Christian sects and denominations, mm -hmm. so many different variations of the afterlife and what that looks like an image of God and who he is or who she is or who they are, mm -hmm. you know, come on. God is not telling us definitively what the hell is going on. So what do we do with that? Yeah. There's no way to know. I don't know. Yeah. I, we can have intuitions, but if someone tells me, Mark, I can hundred percent know exactly what's going to happen in the afterlife. <laughs>
you know, I don't know. I'll be like, well, I'm glad you know. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if this happened for you, but like for me, when I was really, really grappling with this stuff, there was kind of this dichotomy in me. And I, I felt myself sort of vacillating back and forth between two extremes. One of them being, this is incredibly freeing to realize that I don't have to constantly live in terror of hell or mm. of being responsible for making other people go to hell, you know, et cetera. But then on the other mm -hmm. side, there was this sense of grief and loss. Like, mm -hmm. not that I no longer believe in an afterlife of any kind. I honestly, I, I don't know. Like, I'm definitely at that place of I don't have the answers. But mm -hmm. just the grief of not having the answers is very disorienting, especially when you've grown mm -hmm. up your entire life believing that there's mm -hmm. one of two eventualities. And, yes. and it's just, it almost brings security, even though it's like a really, really anxiety-ridden security. It's a security nonetheless of just knowing yeah. where the end line is, where the finish line is. You're absolutely right. I mean, you're also pointing to why, you know, wherever you are in the world, wherever there's religion, there's afterlife narratives, right? I just say like, you know, human beings, we just like to make shit up. I mean, look, look how many genres of music there are. Um, look how many millions of books that exist in the world. And we love to create. And that's another point about, you know, hell. Why should we have to believe the worst creative narrative that someone else spun? Like, yeah, yeah. Somebody catastrophized and we were like, ooh, that does sound like the worst case scenario. Let's believe that. <laughs> I know, I know, but it makes sense. And at the same time, we have to come to a place of what feels most congruent for us, mm. what is in line for our own values. And your point to a, a beautiful piece, rather difficult in the grieving journey of leaving your faith is that you can't just take one strand out. Yeah. Because, you know, because if you take hell out, you may be taking my community out. Because you can't be in a community that believes that any longer because it's no longer in line with your values and it would drive you mad. So now we're talking about loss. So grief means there's loss. Mm -hmm. Loss of who we thought God was. Loss of who we thought we were. Loss of a community. Loss of a relationship we thought we had with a sacred text. Loss of our vision of what we thought the afterlife would be about. It's a lot of loss. It's very disorienting. Mm -hmm. So nothing but compassion as one who's experienced that myself, feel like I've gone on the other side of that, but it's a lot of people struggle with that grief and it's real. Yeah. And there's no timeline yeah. know, of when someone should be out of that stage. You talked earlier about the us versus them and how in some ways having that, you know, ultimate destination of either heaven or hell, it's sort of like, it solidifies the in-group, out-group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are the implications of no longer seeing things in that sort of dichotomy? Well, I, I think the hope is that it brings more unity amidst diversity. We don't have to be united around a punitive wrath of God or an afterlife that may 
you know, give us solace for many good reasons. Well, I mean, one of the reasons why Hell Now has evolved to such an extent is because, like you pointed out too, it gives comfort knowing that if we're Christian, we won't go to hell. But I'm saying it gives comfort knowing that those who were our enemies will suffer for eternity. But yeah, I just think that without it, we can be more united. And that's my whole impulse is why not get around love? Why not get around more of what we have in common rather than what we don't? Why don't we rather expose tribalism in all its forms? I mean, gosh, this is religion and then the integration of religion and politics and politics has its own tribalism. Therapists, uh, you know, there's over 350 models of therapy. I've experienced tribalism in models of therapy and, and groups and cliques. So this thing is just a human thing. We just like to, we tend to like sameness. It brings some comfort. And we do know that there's a tricky thing to the in crowd that it does bring about and trigger oxytocin, mm. which is this uniting, you call it the cuddle hormone, but is kind of unites us together in a way. But the dark side of what I understand, I'm not a neuroscientist, but it also can have a dark side that it creates some aggression towards those on the outside. So while it can unite people on the in crowd, it could also create this aggressive stance. And I see it all the time. I've experienced it. You start questioning hell and all of a sudden, where's that anger coming from? I'm just, I'm just having a hard time believing, oh, you're a heretic. You're going to go to hell. And mm -hmm. you know, you're hanging out with Satan. Why are you so angry? Yeah. Like what the hell is going on? Yeah, and there's plenty of people doing it, but let's come together as human beings. Let's elevate love and relationships above all else. And let's do good in the world. Yeah. I think it, it's so much easier to turn off your empathy towards people if you also believe that they are destined to go to eternal hell, you know, mm. but if you kind of take that out of the equation, you kind of have to question your lack of empathy for certain groups of people, you know, instead it's like, wait a minute, if hell isn't the ultimate place that one of us is going, then maybe it's more complicated and maybe it's worth taking some more time to understand each other and empathize. Ah, uh, I, I like that. You know what I think of too, when you're talking about that, you know, so much of religion can be, a, I think, a defense mechanism that keeps us away from maybe the complexity and maybe even harshness that we experience in the world. But I think without it, it forces us to figure this shit out on our own mm -hmm. and to take this life seriously and to take the way we relate to ourselves and the environment and other creatures seriously. If, if this is what it is and we don't know what's going to go on afterwards, you know, maybe we're more in the same boat than we realize. Yeah. It's just an interesting thought, you know? Yeah. So we've talked uh, very theologically and philosophically, but I want to get practical for a minute. If, mm -hmm. if someone suspects that maybe they have religious trauma related to hell doctrine, like what are some of the signs that maybe they could start to notice within themselves that would help them better understand that and know if this does apply to them? Well... If I say hell, what happens? 
<laughs> what happens to you on the inside? You know, the stimulus, right? The uh -huh. trigger. If it's not a trigger, you probably ain't got hell trauma. I believe that because one could say, well, I might not know it's trauma, but on the implicit subcortical nervous system, if you really slowed it down, you know, hey, tell me about hell. Or when I say the words wrathful God and eternal hell, what comes up for you? Like sit with that. You know, I think people would have a response to it. And maybe that's just because of the people I work with where, I mean, literally, if I talked about it, they could get little palpitations, sweaty mm. palms, you know, they they feel uh, the shallow breathing. Maybe all of a sudden they realize they're kind of collapsing in a little bit, you know, and that would be a fear response or sort of self-protective somatic thing that could occur. I just think that people would be triggered by it. So, you know, if you're not losing sleep over it, and if I say hell and you're smiling about it and talking about how great God is, probably a sign it's not really traumatic for you. Right. So on, on a practical level, I trust people's just core selves that you just know, you know, I would want the, them to tell me if they lost sleep over it or, you know, they're in a ball crying, just thinking about how um, their spouse may go to hell. I, I see that. I'm like, this stuff impacts people. It's real. It has traumatic effects. Mm -hmm. And this is a perfect example of how religion can be toxic and how ideas can be toxic. It's no longer like spiritual abuse, you know, with authoritarian leaders, you know, ideas can cause trauma. Yeah. So that's what comes up for me. Yeah. It would just spill out. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot of just being in tune with the cues that your body <laughs> is giving you. But I could also see potentially yeah. like if someone thinks about hell and immediately feels a compulsion to pray, you know, and, and beg for salvation, maybe that's a hint, you know, that, that you could have some trauma there. Or if every mm -hmm. time you hear about someone passing away, you feel compelled to pray that God will accept their soul and that they won't go to hell, you know, like if there's just fear that is driving your immediate responses. Yeah, I, I do struggle. Like, it's so complex, because then I'll think about the people who their impulse is to pray, but they're they're not traumatized by hell. They're just out of love because they believe the truth of God's word and they themselves believe they're saved. Like I've experienced people like that whom when people fell away from the faith, they immediately go to prayer as if to save this person's soul. Right. It's it's an anxiety, but you know, because trauma is subjective in that way, they may not have trauma about it, but can yeah. still pray out of anxiety. Sure. That's true. And yeah. and I think it goes back to what you were saying about like, how are they feeling when they're saying that prayer, you know, is their heart pounding out of their chest because they feel like literally mm. eternity hinges on saying the right words right now. That sounds like trauma, but, but if it's just like, you know, a hopeful dialogue pray for your soul, my brother. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work at a Presbyterian church and I remember one time it was like a baby shower that we were having for one of the women on staff. And yeah. right before the end of the shower, somebody started praying like, Lord, please let this baby be chosen. Please mm -hmm. let them be mm -hmm. accepted into 
your family so that we can all see them in eternity. And I I don't know, it just struck me that like this baby that wasn't even born, like Mm -hmm. there was this room full of people tearfully beseeching God to not condemn this unborn child to hell. And like, and, and I don't know if any of those specific people were traumatized, but that sure is a traumatizing idea. I know. What do you think about this? This idea of, you know, is it fair to say, sister, you've been traumatized by religion, where she would say, oh, no, honey, I believe God's word, and I'm just praying for that dear child's soul, and you better believe I feel anxiety because I don't want him to spend eternity in hell. Interested, Like in their subjective experience, oh, this isn't trauma. This is a passionate plea. You know, I love God, believe God's, but I like, I would say... Gosh, that feels like trauma to me. I know. What do you do with that? I'm just curious. I mean, I remember saying so many things like that myself in the past. Back when I would have sworn I was not traumatized, you know? And so like, I don't know that everyone always has a 100% accurate instinct about their own trauma because it is so easy for your bias to, you know, filter out certain things and for you to explain, oh no, that anxiety is actually the Holy Spirit convicting me, you know, to say this prayer, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, well, as you know, like some people don't know that that is trauma. Like they'll come into me. I don't know if you ever experienced this come in with symptoms mm-hmm. and like may not know much about trauma. I'm like, that's, Hey, let's explore this. And do you know what trauma is? And you know, they'll read something on, Oh my God, you're right. So th- people can experience trauma, but yet not cognitively experience it as trauma. Oh, absolutely. I think people can be traumatized and not realize that they have trauma as far as recovery though. It's pretty hard, if not impossible, to start healing from trauma until you've recognized that you have it. I also think about people throughout, I mean, thousands of years, having afterlife narratives, you know, and all different kinds of deities, and maybe even like you've talked about animism and ancestors, were they all, was that all religious trauma, you know? To, uh-huh. and then And then you get into... Oh, they're brainwashing them. You know, I guess for me, I try to take a broad lens. Like there's sometimes there's a narrow lens where I'm like, F you, that is not okay. That's evil. That's that's just traumatic. And then I take, I zoom out and I say, oh, like humans, it's just what we do. We create afterlife narratives. This yeah. isn't just a Christian thing. This is afterlife narratives have functions. They've existed for many, 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 many thousands of years. Right. This is just happens to be one of them. Absolutely. I think, you know, afterlife narratives are a coping mechanism. And like any coping mechanism, it can be healthy and helpful under some circumstances, and then it can be really damaging under others. And so I think it, it's more a matter of us just sort of evaluating, like, is this accomplishing the purpose that it's supposed to serve, you know, like, or is it, is it causing division and trauma? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I'm with you there. 
Mark, if folks mm-hmm. want to find your book or find out more about you, where should they find you on the internet? I am a social media dinosaur. Okay. <laughs> to the chagrin of many of those around me um, telling me to get Instagram and everything else. I, I'm just on Facebook. You know, I have my website, markgregorycarros.com. But, you know, the book, you could pick it up on Amazon, both the audiobook and, and the book. And I'd love to hear from folks. Um, so don't hesitate to reach out. I love engaging with readers. Yeah. Cool. Well, mm-hmm. so before we close out, I always have guests uh, share some oh, kind to of- pray? <laughs> no. oh. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. pray, pray that we're all chosen and- Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. Share, a, share a story if you have one that's just okay. something funny or ironic about religious culture. Yeah. I uh, When I look back on my old school church days- um, I just can't believe how fantastical and dramatic it all was. Mm-hmm. And so now every, not every church focused on demons, but mine did. And, and in those days, I look back at myself, I felt like, you know, looking back, Harry Potter wasn't around, but it seemed like such like I was in, in an epic Harry Potter film. <laughs> I mean, I constantly took it upon myself to fight the demons lurking around every corner, like some sort of warrior magician going into battle. My prayers for myself and others included mysterious spells, such as I bind you in the name of Jesus, yes. or I loose you in the name of Jesus. And, and check this out. I would actually plead the blood around doorways so that demons would not sort of, I guess, follow me inside and have their way. I mean, talk I know, about traumatizing. I, I know. It's so wild when I when I think back of the culture. But, you know, what's interesting back then, it was, it felt like, because I was young, mm-hmm. like, I guess I was in a movie, you know. <laughs> like Stranger like felt, Things, like you're, you're fighting I the know. Demogorgon. Yeah. I know. Totally crazy. And uh, it made me think back of like Gandalf and the Lord of the Rings. You shall not pass. Like, so I just find that it was, what the, what was that? You know, everybody wants to be fighting against evil. Yeah, it was wild, one wild adventure, exciting at times. However, the cost, the cost in believing in demons behind every bush along with the constant anxiety and fear, definitely was too costly. So I would rather have not had that. But that was an interesting piece of church culture. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, thank you so much for being here. Sure. It was great uh, being here, Anna. Wishing you well. Yeah, you too. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions... Lean not on your own understanding. Shoot me an email at Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.